you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 16 today, and I want to introduce this parable of Jesus by making this observation. Uh, Lisa and I were talking and thinking that as we have shared the gospel, we could think of two or three folks in particular who would respond to us and say, if only God would do some miracle, then I would believe in him. If you would do something miraculous and allow me to see that, if I could see Jesus, then I would believe, then I would become a Christian. Maybe you've heard somebody say that in the past. Maybe that's something you've said or a thought that you have had. But Jesus startles us in this parable today because he says that even seeing someone rise from the dead is not enough to change our hearts toward God. That we need to see something different. We need to see something more. And Jesus teaches us this by telling a story to shape our minds. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus, and so I want to read this one for you in Luke 16. I'll read verses 19 to the end of the chapter, and then I will pray for us and we will dig in. Hear now this parable, this story that Jesus told. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner had bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray as we come to his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here before your book, listening to this story that your son told. And we ask now that you would help us to understand, that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to give us understanding of these words that you have preserved for your people. I pray that you would be at work now, and that you would use the preaching of your word to do the work that you have to do in the lives of your people. 
And I pray that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, if seeing someone rise from the dead is not enough to convince us that we need our life changed by God, then what do we need to see? What is it that we would pray that those in our lives who are not following Jesus, what is it that they need to see? What is it that shows people that we need to have our lives changed by God? Well, let's walk through this story that Jesus told and allow it to shape our minds, allow it to shape our thinking. You see there in verse 19, there was a rich man. Now, we're not told if he worked hard for this money and earned it himself or if he inherited this money, but we just know he has lots of money. He's a very rich man, and he's gotten to the point that he can live however he wants to live. And we see the next thing we're told, he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple was a very expensive cloth in the day. This is telling us that he wore the latest and most expensive fashion purple you had to have dye from this shellfish that only came from a certain place and many folks had never even seen purple or if you did see it it was very rare and so he is clothed in purple every day and Jesus maybe being a little bit humorous also tells us about his underwear here he says he wore fine linen Uh, The translation is a very fine cotton, probably from Egypt, a long way off. Jesus is saying this guy did not buy his underwear at Walmart like the rest of us, okay? He wore only the nicest things uh, and, and was able to wear those things. And it says that he feasted sumptuously every day. So this man had not just what he needed, but also all that he wanted, And this word for feasted implies that he had people over to his house, that he had lots of food, and that he would have people over. So this was a man who was very hospitable. He liked to have parties. He liked to have people over to his house. And he lived like this every day. Now that's important. Don't fly past that. If this is how he lived every day, then what does that tell us about this man? It tells us that he didn't stop one day in seven, as Moses and the prophets would instruct him to. It tells us he was not a man who went to church. It was not a man who went to the synagogue. This is what he did every day. He knew some religious stuff, right? He calls Abraham father. He knows what Abraham is talking about when he says they have Moses and the prophets, but he's not a spiritual man. He does not go to church. He does not live like Moses and the prophets would instruct him to live. In verse 20, we're told that at his gate was laid this poor man. And from the story Jesus tells, it seems that this rich man did not seek to help this poor man. And Jesus then tells us about the poor man in verse 20. He says his name was Lazarus. It's unusual. Jesus never names folks in his parables. But he names this man Lazarus, which means the one God helps. Now those listening to the story would say, is this a joke? The one who helps? The one who God helps is poor and sick and can't get around on his own? and just lies at someone's gate, this is the one God helps? 
Well, evidently Lazarus has a person or two in his life that care for him because it says he was laid at the poor man's gate, passive tense. It was He didn't go lay down there. Someone laid him down there, probably two people to move him around. So he has at least a couple of people in his life who care for him, who take him to a very likely place that he would receive food because this rich man had an abundance and had more than he could eat and there were a lot of well-to-do people who came in and out of this gate coming to this man's party uh, to his feast every day and so this is a very likely place that if you were going to take your friend Lazarus that he would be provided for so evidently Lazarus has a couple of friends in his life who watch after him and will carry him around, but he does seem to have a chronic illness. He's covered with sores. The original audience, the Jewish people were like, ew, this man's unclean. We wouldn't want to go near this man. The Pharisees to whom this story is addressed, you could tell in verse 14, that's who Jesus is talking to, they would not go near this man. Because of his, he's covered with sores. But, but he's still a, a, a person. A person who has longings. It says he desired to eat what fell from the man's table. Not that he ate it. He desired to eat what was at the rich man's table. Could probably smell it could probably hear the feasting and the parties, and he desired to have just some of what was on the rich man's table. He desired to have what the dogs would eat, what fell from the table. But he never complains. You don't hear Lazarus complaining. And there were dogs in the picture that would eat from the table, and these dogs were supposed to run off people like Lazarus. That's what they were there for, was to keep people away. But these dogs seemed to be comfortable with him. They liked him. They got used to him being there. They would lick his sores. Not bite him or run him off. They would lick his sores. Even today, there are studies that show the healing properties of a lick from a dog. Now, let me just stop right here, and let's think about what we've been told by Jesus so far. Okay? Because some of us, because of where we live and the culture that we grew up in, we are already identifying with the poor man, and we already don't like the rich man. Already, that's where we are. And that keeps us from hearing what's going on in the story, because the original audience would have been just the reverse. And so let's just name that, okay? That, that because of the culture that you grew up in, it has influenced you. Because if you grew up in the southeastern United States, like many of us did, if you grew up in the West, then you grew up in a Judeo-Christian culture. And I want to point out that it is the teaching of Jesus that makes Western people, that makes people in the South care about poor people. Or think that someone who does not contribute to society has any value whatsoever. Because you need to understand that the original audience hearing this, no one in the Roman Empire would care about a poor, chronically ill man. They just wouldn't care. He produces nothing for the Roman Empire, and he would be marginalized and forgotten. Eastern religions... 
Any religion that, that thinks about it considers karma something to be real. They would say the reason this man is poor and chronically ill is because he deserved it. He has sinned in some way in this life or maybe a former life, and so he deserves this, and so there wouldn't be this sympathy and the man would be marginalized. Even Jewish people associated being rich with blessings and poverty with sin, and they had so narrowed their definition of neighbor that they didn't really help many folks. Remember Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Adam preached on a few weeks ago. So if you are already in this story identifying with the poor man and not liking the rich man, listen, I'm not saying you're a Christian. I'm just saying recognize that you have been influenced by the teaching of Jesus. That in the history of the world, and even right now, it's just a historical fact that apart from the teaching of Jesus, no one else teaches that someone who does not produce something of value for society has value in and of themselves. Typically, if you cannot contribute to society, then you are useless and marginalized. And only Jesus and those influenced by his teaching will tell you that all people have inherent worth and value because they're made in the image of God. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand this parable because these folks were shocked because they thought the rich man was the good guy. He's obviously blessed by God because he has health and he has wealth. And this poor man is obviously a sinner and unclean and deserves whatever it is that he gets. And yet Jesus says they died and the poor man goes to heaven and the rich man goes to Hades. And these people are like, whoa, wait just a minute. We need to understand that to understand this people. Now let me just stop and, and, and talk about another idea just briefly. I understand that also in our Western culture, also where we live, some of us are nervous about the idea of a Hades, the idea of a hell. And I can understand why. I grew up in, a, in this culture in the southeastern United States, and typically when we have heard talk of hell... It is usually from someone who is yelling, from someone who is red-faced, maybe in church, maybe someone street preaching, pointing a finger in judgment, telling us how awful we are and how we're going to hell. Notice in this story, Jesus is not yelling. He's not red-faced. He's not pointing a finger at anyone. Jesus is telling a story. And he's telling a story to illustrate verse 14. If you look up further in the chapter, we're told the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed him, ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus is now telling a story to illustrate what it looks like to look like a really good person on the outside and justify yourself before people, but to not have your heart right with God. That's what this story is about. Jesus here is illustrating verse 14. That's what he's illustrating. Okay? 
So that's the point of what Jesus is doing. He's just telling this story to illustrate this point. And notice that Abraham in the story is not yelling or red-faced or finger-pointing. Abraham, I think, is quite kind. He refers to him as child. Remember what life was like in the world for you and for Lazarus. Abraham is, is firm yet tender. And look at Lazarus. He's not pointing at the man. He's not laughing at him. He's not saying, you want help from me? <laughs> After you never lifted a finger to do anything for me, I endured that with all that complaining. I mean, the Lazarus could have gone Toby Keith, like, how do you like me now, right? And he doesn't do that. There's none of that kind of attitude. There's none of that kind of vengefulness. You do need to understand that Jesus does teach that we are all headed for some sort of eternal destiny. If you want to read more, read John chapter 5, beginning at about verse 25 and following, at least down through 30, he talks about that. And he says there that when he returns, the dead will be raised because he has authority over all things and that he will judge all people and some will raise from the dead to eternal life and some will be raised from the dead to eternal judgment. I know that's a hot-button word in our culture as well. We think we don't want to judge anybody. We want, there's no judgment. Before I move on to the story, can we just agree that we do want judgment? It's surprising to me the inconsistency in our, in our culture when we say don't judge anybody. Have you read anything online lately? I mean, my goodness, all the complaints, all the people crying out, all the hashtags in our culture, what are they calling for? Judgment. We want you to judge and see that this is wrong, that this is right, and that this is good, and that this is bad. And that makes sense. Our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, actually long for judgment, don't we? Historically, maybe it's easier to say yes. You know, someone like Hitler, someone like Mao, somebody like Pinochet or Stalin or Pol Pot or, or Saddam Hussein or Idi Amin or these people who killed millions of people or starved their own people. Yes, they should be judged. And if you think that, then yes, you have a category for judgment. But not just historically, or not just in our society, the world that we see online, but think about individually in your own heart, in your own life. How many of us are so relieved when we tell our story, when we trust someone else enough to tell our own story, and that person hears about our life, and they look at us and they say, what happened to you was wrong. And you should not have been treated that way. Oh, for some of us, our hearts long to hear that about our own stories. We have counselors who do that for us to bring great healing, and rightfully so. But that's judgment. That's saying that this is wrong and that this would have been right. And that people shouldn't be treated that way. 
So, I would ask for you to consider, considering the, the history of the world and people we do think should be judged, culturally, seeing our cultural moment and the hashtags of the day that, that all obviously call for judgment, even knowing our individual hearts, longing for people to, to affirm what we've been through and what we've felt. That perhaps Jesus is speaking here of what we all long for. But he's speaking of it in a, in a big, in a cosmic, but very kind way. Let me get back to our story. Verse 24. The man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Here's a man, the rich man, who did not have mercy on Lazarus, who is poor and ill and hungry, whose friends carried him to this man's door. This man fed his dogs more than what he fed Lazarus. This man's dogs treated Lazarus better than he treated the man. And this man who did not have mercy, I'm guessing now feels suffering and sees what has happened and said, and you think he's going to apologize. Lazarus, I'm so sorry. Now that I feel pain, I should have comforted you. Will you do for me what I never did? No apology. He complains about his own anguish. I'm in anguish in this flame, so Abraham, will you send Lazarus to get me a drink? <laughs> he still sees Lazarus as the inferior to all gathered here, right? Abraham, and I'm a rich man, and Abraham, you're a rich man, and we're blessed by God. Can you send the servant to get me something to drink? Can you send him to my brothers? No apology, no remorse just hating the consequences. The rich man has not changed. And I love the way he argues even with Father Abraham, right? In verse 30, when Abraham says, look, they've got Moses, and he says, no, don't give them the Bible. Don't give them the scripture. Don't give them the word. Don't give them that Bible stuff. Put away the Bible and all those stories. Do something special for my family. Raise one from the dead, and then they'll believe. And in verse 31, Jesus, speaking in the story through Abraham, says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. It's interesting, this man's still arguing with Abraham in Hades, in torment, still thinking that he's right and knows the right way to proceed, and Father Abraham does not. But Jesus is right in what he says here. It is interesting that these people who he's talking to, that he's making the story, Jesus does, if you read the end of this book, rise from the dead. And they don't change their hearts toward God. They don't change. Jesus is right in what he says here. So what is it that people need to see to convince us that we need a life changed by God? Well, it's not raising somebody from the dead. Jesus says it here, and then, and then it plays out in history. God did that, and it didn't change people's hearts. There must be something more. Well, Abraham says Moses and the prophets, they've got that. God certainly uses his word, but there are some people that just, the word falls on deaf ears. We talked about that. Go back and, and, and listen to the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, one of the first ones in this series. 
blessings. If God blesses somebody, they'll have grateful heart. Well, this guy had great circumstances. It didn't change his heart. Hardship. Maybe that's what we need. Well, this guy's in torment in Hades. And he still thinks he knows better than what Father Abraham knows. He still hasn't apologized. He still thinks he's superior to Lazarus. And that Lazarus should... There's no apology here. Difficulties haven't changed his heart. Well, maybe it's just this money. We just have to sell everything we have and, and give it to the poor. No. Being rich is not what led to judgment in Hades. Who's the rich man talking to? Abraham. Abraham was rich. He was blessed by God with great riches, and he's in heaven. So it's not the riches themselves. It's not as if we sell everything we have and give to the poor that that gets us into heaven. What is it? What do we need? What is it we have to see to convince us that we need a life changed by God? Here's what it is. We must come to the end of ourselves. We must come to the end of ourselves and see that there is a God and we are not God. And we have to see that it's not all about us. We have to see ourselves as Lazarus, that we are poor but for the grace of God. That we are sick and suffering but for the grace of God. That we are alone, without any friends, isolated on the world, but for the grace of God. That we're unable to do anything on our own except for going astray. That we consistently pick the wrong way. Our only hope is to be Lazarus, the one who God helps. Listen, God created all things. And I want you to hear very clearly that God created you. You are not a random, by chance, happenstance, something in our universe. God fashioned you out of love and out of delight and out of his creativity. And he made you with a purpose for your life in this world. And that because God made you and he made everything, we owe him everything. Our next breath, any talent that we have, any money that we it is all because of his grace and mercy. Yet we reject him. How many hours can you go without even acknowledging his presence, without praying, without listening for his voice in his, in his word? We ignore him. And we're not good to one another. Other people made in his image. The rich forget the poor and just think of themselves. The poor can get bitter towards the rich. But God has not given up on us. God's not quit. He sent his own son to teach us what no one else would teach. That every person is made with dignity. And he shocks us by saying a man who led what seems to be a good life in this world can be judged in the next because of his heart. And that one forgotten in this world can be remembered in the world to come. 
I want to take a moment before I stop talking to you, I, I, and I just want to ask you, I want you to reflect some. This really calls for reflection. Jesus is telling this story to get these people to think, what is my heart like toward God? Not the outward stuff, justifying things before men, but where am I? Taking an inventory of where I am before God. Just think, do you see yourself as Lazarus, the one who God helps? And that you are without hope, separate and apart from God. That there's nothing that you have that he didn't give you. Let's be very honest with ourselves. That this story Jesus told is not just right on target for the people of his day. But it's right on target for us. Jesus begins this story by describing exactly what each and every one of us wants for our own lives and wants for our kids. We want to get to the point that we're not dependent on other people. We want to accumulate enough that we can live life the way we want to live it. He's describing what our culture tells us that we should long for and work for. And Jesus says that the one who follows that way is in Hades. And that what we all long to avoid, poverty, sickness, discomfort, being marginalized, that that one is in heaven. So let's get serious about examining our own hearts and our own lives because we're obviously not good judges of what is good and what is bad. We think we're pretty good people. We're in church today. Hey, listen, Jesus is telling this story to the most religious people of his day. And he's saying, listen, I understand in verse 14 that you justify yourselves before men, but God sees your heart. And God, what he wants is your heart. And this man in his heart was a lover of money, or at least the stuff that it would give him. And he could have made a difference in the world and the lives of those around him, but instead he spent it all on himself and ignored the poor man at his gate. And that shows what was in his heart. And in the next life he faced torment. What about you? Is your life characterized by a love of neighbor? Do you see your stuff as God's stuff and you use your stuff for God's glory? You know, it's more than just giving 10% or a tithe to God's church. Do you ask God how he wants you to use all of the stuff he's given you? You know, it's not like 10% of it's his and 90% of it's yours. It is all his. This rich man had a religious background. He knows Abraham. He knows Moses and the prophets. Could those things have saved him? The rich man says, no, it's not enough. Abraham says, yes, it is enough if you had listened to them. If you had recognized them as rightly governing your life. If you recognize them as the right way and your way is wrong if it is different from God's way. And that when you stray from them, you are wrong. Let me ask you, do you have a love for the Scripture? Do you see what God has written here as life and that departing from it is death? Or are you not really interested in the Word? You don't really have an appetite for it? 
Are you sad when you have violated the scripture? Do you confess that to God? Or is our time of confession just something you want to hurry up and get through to get to the songs that you like? Or to hear another story that Jesus told? Do you confess that you trust in yourself more than you trust in God? Listen, this is not about being perfect and never making a mistake. We're seeing Abraham there in heaven And Abraham made so many mistakes. Go back to the sermon series on Abraham. But Abraham was willing to say, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. That when my will is different from your will, I'm the one who's wrong. But Jesus is saying here, if you think you can do whatever you want to do with your money, he talks about in verses 10 through 15. If you think you can marry whoever you want to marry, verse 18, he talks about right before this, then Moses and the prophets have no authority over your life. And that is the path to Hades. This is a danger for us. Because we live in a culture that tells us we can be anything that we want to be. That we can do anything we want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else with a very narrow definition of what harms somebody else. But if I am only doing life according to my own preferences, if I see life as a create my own adventure novel that I make all the choices, if that's the way I think inside, then my life begins to reflect that. And I begin to see people as objects that I can leverage for my own platform, And I don't just consume food, but I begin to consume people. I manipulate images and I put them online so people will think well of me, which is exactly what Jesus is condemning in verse 15. You justify yourself before men, but God sees your heart. As a result, even when offered Jesus resurrected from the dead... I'm not really sure I want that because I'm not sure I want to change my life. I've got it pretty good. I'm sort of ordering it like I want to get there. are a few more things I'd like. But if you were offered the Bible, the compelling story of creation, that God created all things good, that there was a fall, that things are broken and messed up because of our bad choices, that God is committed to redeeming creation, he's going to come back and he's going to make all things new. And that doesn't move you if that's not the story of your life. If it seems dated and you feel like you have a better idea of what is right and wrong these days than what the Bible says, when we're unwilling to give up what we want, our own independence, then seeing someone rise from the dead is not going to be enough to convince us. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, that would mean he has authority to change my view toward money or sex or food, or the clothes that I wear, or the things that I do. But if you're willing to say, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, I know that my tendency is to go in my own way. I often think I know better than God knows, and as a result, I deserve judgment from God, and I have no hope except in Jesus the one who lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died for my sin, the one whose resurrection gives me hope that I will be resurrected and that I will live in comfort eternally and be comforted by him. If that is your heart, then you're on the path to heaven. I call you, turn to Christ, risen from the dead, 
our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak so clearly. Thank you that you speak in a way that applies in the culture of your day and still in our culture today. Father, I just pray for my friends. This is a heavy, heavy word. And I just pray that for those of us who need to feel the weight, that we would feel the weight. For those of us with a sensitive conscience, that you would help us to see the sweetness of your grace and your mercy offered in your Son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.